You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. On October 27th and 28th, I will be doing a video game streaming marathon for charity called Extra Life. The goal of this marathon is to raise money for the Children's Miracle Network, a charity that helps children in need. As part of that marathon on October 27th, at 6pm until midnight Central Daylight Time, I will be playing Battlefield 1, a first-person shooter set during 1918. I will also be answering questions about the First World War, historical accuracy in video games, and really anything else you might want to know. The stream will be happening at twitch.tv slash history of the great war. That's twitch.tv slash history of the great war. So even if you have no interest in the video game, come hang out and maybe check out the awesome charity. Okay, that's all for now. Uh, let's get on with the episode. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 137. This week, a big thank you goes out to listener Jan for their donation. Thank you very much. And everybody should check out the podcast on Facebook, where I post updates somewhat frequently, and we have some pretty good discussion. That's facebook.com slash history of the great war. This is our second episode on the air war over the front in 1916. And this week, we will be focused solely on the air battle over the Somme. For the British, 1916 would be defined by the Somme, both on the ground and in the air. And while the French and Germans would also participate, it would just be another large battle, just like the one they were already fighting to the south. In this episode, we will look at the preparations for the battle, as both sides tried to gain control over the soon-to-be battlefield. And then we will look at the events of July 1916, as the British would have the advantage, and then follow that story all the way until November, when the battle ended with the Germans in firm control of the air. This episode features a larger-than-usual set of first-hand accounts, much like some of our episodes on the Battle of the Somme last year, that comes mostly thanks to the huge amount of scholarship devoted to the battle over the years. They are also, sadly, almost entirely British-focused, as there are far more English sources for me to pull from. I would love to learn German eventually, but there are only so many hours in the day. 
As with any major battle, the air war over the Somme began with reconnaissance, and it would be this reconnaissance, generally involving photographs, that would inform the planning for the attack and then influence its execution. The BEF took over the Somme front in July 1915, but it would not be until March 1916 that they began to put a lot of effort into cataloging the German positions along their front. Here is Lieutenant Robin Rowell of the RFC discussing the plan. Quote, as far as possible, the whole of the German front line would be photographed for a depth of about uh, a thousand yards every month. The cameras that we used for this work were box cameras with an infinity focus, containing an auxiliary magazine or changing box of 12 plates. As each of these plates was exposed, they were transferred into a second changing box uh, by means of a sliding handle that worked on top of the camera. This handle reset the shutter for another exposure at the same time. The shutter release had a piece of cord attached to it so that the pilot might pull it easily with his thick-gloved hands." To get the best photographs, the pilots would fly at just 6,000 feet, quite low by this point in the war. Lieutenant Rao goes on to describe the danger of flying over the lines at this height. Quote, the shells would burst far faster than you could count them, and you were compelled to change your direction every 15 to 20 seconds or you would not last long. But it's well worth taking heavy risks to get good photos. If you are being worried by an AA gun well, while you are ranging your own guns, and you happen to know where the culprit is, is in hiding, you have only to fly straight until you see him fire, and then 10 or 15 seconds later, change your course, one way or another, and you will find the shells will explode where you had been instead of where you are now. There are a few things that annoy Archie more than this trick because he doesn't get a ghost of a chance of even frightening you. If you are at a height of six or 7,000 feet, it will take the shell about 20 seconds to explode from the time you see the flash of the gun. End quote. While at times the pilots were successful in bringing back critical photos of the German lines, at times things would conspire to prevent them from getting the information that they were searching for. Sometimes it was essential, it was as simple as an equipment malfunction, as described by 2nd Lieutenant Hutchian. Quote, Today I went up to take photos and went out over the lines four times, carefully siding the required trenches and taking 18 photos. I spent nearly two and a half hours in the air, and when I got back, I found the string that worked the shutter had broken after my third photo, and the rest had not come out. It was disappointing because my last three journeys over the line need not have been made, and incidentally, it would have saved getting a hole through one of my planes." While the photos were not as detailed as they would be with modern equipment, there was a lot of information hidden inside of them. The British intelligence officers became adept at determining non-obvious information from the photos, like how deep a trench was by the shadows that it cast, or the state of the railways leading up to the front, or any number of other items. These photos would then be used to decide where to lay artillery bombardments, where best to send units during the attack, and what German opposition could be expected at points along the front. In early 1916, the Germans owned the skies with their Fokker Eindeckers, but that would change before the summer. One critical aircraft that helped turn the tide was the de Havilland DH-2, which we briefly discussed last week. The DH-2 was a pusher fighter, with a gun mounted to fire forward. While perhaps not the most beautiful aircraft, and one that was slower than the Fokker, and having a slower rate of climb, the pilots really liked it. Most of this affection came from the fact that it could outturn anything else in the skies at this point in the war. It would also perform those turns without losing as much airspeed as other planes, which meant that it did not lose as much altitude, and this gave it an advantage. 
Later on, the DH-2 would be joined by the Sopwith 1.5 Strutter, which was a tractor plane with a second seat for an observer who was equipped with a Lewis gun on a ring mount. While the British planes were very comparable, if not superior to the German planes they faced, the British pilots were still very green, and the British science of aerial combat was just beginning to develop, a fact that I think is well illustrated by Captain Williams of the RFC in this quote. The idea of devoting some method of practice to allowances in shooting was solved by Major Hawker, who designed the first aiming-off model with the marked rod up the center, which later became universal and was adopted by every training station in the RFC. We had been discussing aiming off and how much to allow at various ranges. Major Hawker taking a pencil and paper and reckoning the pace of a bullet showed us in a few moments that one, that most of us were wide of the mark, two, that range was a very essential factor that we were largely overlooking, He was one of the first to realize that many a pilot can get close to his man, but few can shoot straight enough to shoot him down. These kinds of conversations around aerial combat and how to shoot are obviously quite important when trying to master aerial combat. And the fact that the British were having them so late in the war uh, is somewhat concerning. May and June would see the air over the Somme reach... May and June would see the air roar over the Somme reach new heights of intensity. For the British and French, they were attempting to keep the Germans away from their preparations, while at the same time learning as much as possible about the German defenses. For the Germans, they knew that something was happening, the buildup was unmistakable, but they needed to find out as much as possible about it. The British and French pilots were the ones getting the short end of the stick in these situations, with greater demands placed on them to fly deep over German territory, or is a dangerous task. Lieutenant Leslie Horridge describes part of the problem. Quote, the poor old BE-2C just trickles along with the weight it has to carry. 30 gallons of petrol, two officers, two Lewis guns, about 400 rounds of ammunition, two 20-pound bombs, wireless, uh, and a huge camera fitted on the outside of the machine where it gets all the air resistance. It is just about as much as it can expect to fly with, end quote. At this point, the BE-2C was a slow aircraft to begin with, even before it was loaded with everything it needed to fly over the lines, as described by Lieutenant Horridge. The presence of the two 20-pound bombs is interesting, but Lieutenant Alan Jackson explains why they were given these two bombs. Quote, all machines that flew up to the lines and across had always to carry two 20-pound bombs and drop them on any target that they thought was worthwhile. The object of this was to make quite sure that the pilots did cross the lines and go over enemy territory. Very often, they rather skirted that through nervous tiredness, and they preferred not to do it. Across the lines is always more dangerous than doing it on your own side, and they had to get across the lines to do it, and they had to choose some railway station or whatever it might be that they thought might be useful to bomb. As often as not, they never hit them, so it didn't much matter, but they still dropped the bombs, and they got across the line, which was the object of the exercise." Many pilots would lose their lives in the early days of the battle. However, it was always seen as worth it. The lives of a few pilots and observers could be spent to gain information that could save huge numbers of infantry. In the last few weeks before the attack, the British would have 185 aircraft and 75 fighters over the front. The French would bring even more. The Germans would meet these with just 129 aircraft and only 20 being fighters. They were heavily outnumbered, but they were lucky to have weather on their side. 
Just a week before the start of the offensive, the British and French would launch a simultaneous air offensive, with their primary targets being the German observation balloons along the front. There were even special aircraft sent out that were armed with phosphorus bombs to increase the likelihood of destroying the balloons. There was just one problem. On the day of the attack, the weather was horrible, with impenetrable low clouds that cloaked the balloons, resulting in none of them being lost. This poor weather would continue all the way up to the attack, preventing the last-minute preparations from the RFC. However, they had done as much as they probably could. They had taken a ton of photographs of almost the entire series of German trenches and positions, and now they transitioned into the role of assisting the infantry in their attack. During the attack, the planes had a very important role to play. They were to fly over the front at just a few thousand feet to track the progress of the infantry. In his book, Some Success, Peter Hart would say that, quote, the contact patrols witnessed tragedy unparalleled in British military history before or since. It was their role to determine the exact progress of the troops on the ground, and this information was vital to inform the supporting artillery batteries, as it had been found that through bitter experience that conventional means of communication frequently broke down when the troops launched themselves across no man's land, end quote. Second Lieutenant Cecil Lewis would describe how he was supposed to go about tracking the battle. Quote, we had all of our contact patrol technique perfected, and we went right down to 3,000 feet to see what was happening. We had a klaxon horn on the undercarriage of our aircraft, a big 12-volt klaxon, and I had a button which I used to press out a letter to the infantry that we wanted to know where they were. When they heard us hawking at them from above, they had little red flares they carried in their pockets, and they were to put a match to their flares. All along the lines, wherever there was a, chi- a chap, there would be a flare, and we would note these flares down on the map, and Bob's your uncle. It was one thing to practice this, but quite another thing for them to really do it when they were under fire, and particularly when things began to go a bit badly. Then they jolly well wouldn't light anything, and small blame to them because it drew the fire of the enemy on them at once. So we went down looking for flares, and we only got about two flares on the whole front. We were bitterly disappointed because this, we hoped, was our part to help the infantry, and we weren't able to do it. End quote. Flares were not the only way in which pilots could follow the infantry. Many units were equipped with white strips of cloth that they were supposed to lay on the ground. Others had metal mirrors on their packs, which it was hoped would reflect the light for the pilots to see. It's pretty hard to know if such schemes would have been successful if the attack had really started rolling, since much of the attack resulted in very little progress. There were also other tasks for the RFC, though. One task was performed by the bombers flying behind German lines. There they attempted to drop bombs on some of the major German rail and road junctions to interrupt the flow of reinforcements to the front. Some of these missions were successful, with several trains being destroyed all on their way up to the front, but many of them would miss the mark entirely. What is interesting about these attacks is not the results, but instead the creation of this close air support, which would become such a vital part in planning in the future. These early close support missions, both behind and over the front, assisted in much more than just the physical bombing or strafing. They also had a very real mental impact on the Germans. Here is a German officer to describe why this was the case. Quote, the infantry had no training in defense against very low-flying aircraft. Moreover, they had no confidence in their ability to shoot these machines down if they were determined to press home their attacks. As a result, they were seized by fear amounting almost to panic, a fear that was fostered by the incessant activity and hostility of enemy airplanes. End quote. 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. As the fighting on the ground continued, the air war continued to grind on. Photos and observation patrols had to be done continuously as the battlefield changed on a day-to-day basis. Lieutenant Leslie Horridge would be on one of the pilots going out day after day to do this work. Quote, the airplane signals to the battery by wireless and the battery signals to the airplane by strips of white cloth on the ground. It is a common fallacy to think that you can see everything from an airplane. It is often very hard to make out details. When ranging with shrapnel, it is quite easy to see the burst, but with high explosive, it is quite difficult. Unless you are watching the place where the shell bursts at the right moment, you will miss it as the smoke is brown and cannot be seen against the ground, and all you see is the earth thrown up, which of course falls back in a second. You are usually at a height of around 8,000 feet, although some days you have to be much closer. All the time you have to be on the lookout for Huns. End quote. There were several schemes to in place that were used to tell the pilots in the air where the lines were at any given moment. At about 700 feet, the pilots could determine the color of uniforms, but they did not want to fly that low due to the risk of ground fire and the risk of falling prey to German planes dropping in on them from above. There were also the signaling panels, mirrors, and flares that were used during the initial attack, but here is Major General Trenchard discussing the usage of flares at the front. Quote, flares can be easily seen and distinguished from the air and proved their value on many occasions for defining the position reached by the infantry. From the observer's point of view, they were not lit in sufficient numbers. This was no doubt partly due to the shortage in supply, only a portion of the men carrying them in consequence. Some of our men seem to think that the flares draw shell fire. If you judiciously placed, however, they can easily be screened from the enemy view altogether. The Germans use rockets freely, uh, although they are more likely to draw fire than our flares. End quote. While the RFC had all of these duties to support the infantry, there were also plenty of things to do to counter the German air forces. To do this in a time before radar required a group of men on the front to be watching and waiting for German planes to make themselves known, uh, and once they were spotted, messages were sent to nearby airfields where pilots were waiting. Here is Lieutenant A.M. Wilkinson describing what would happen on these airfields. 
Quote, a system of alarms was arranged, a bell ringing both in the squadron office and in the mess, and how vividly we all remember those bells, which generally seemed to ring about two minutes before one's relief came, for we stood by ready to leave the ground immediately when the alarm rang. With the mono engine, no time was wasted in starting or warming up, and quite frequently machines were in the air well within one minute of the alarm bell ringing. I well remember the general alarm sounding on one occasion, on a rather dead day, when most people were in the mess. A general alarm sounded if more than ten machines were reported. On this occasion in one minute, machines were streaming out of the hangar and twelve machines were off the ground in under two minutes. We never found anything at all, and we were supposed we supposed afterwards that Archie had been seeing things. It was probably six machines which passed four times over a gap in the clouds. To save time, a large board was placed outside the squadron office with the area and number of hostile aircraft on it, and as one took off, one glanced at the board to see what one's task was. This was, like most of our other gadgets, Major Hawker's idea. Three and sometimes even four shows a day. I've done, I have done the latter myself in extreme cases when an attack was on. And throughout it all, a great spirit of responsibility and unselfishness ran through, right through the squadron. The work done by some of the mechanics at times was tremendous, again and again work having to be continued all night to enable to keep the machines serviceable. Speaking of my own flight, which was representative, the men at that time were really wonderful. No holidays, no leave, and all work, but never a grumble. I had on more than one occasion to order men to bed in the daytime, or otherwise I knew that they would collapse and break down. End quote. August would see the British change some of their tactics in the air, all driven by their responses from the Germans. It was during this month that more German fighters arrived at the front, and this included a large stock of newer planes. These new arrivals made the skies very dangerous for British pilots, and to try and deal with this, the British switched many of their bombing missions over to nighttime raids. This made the flying itself more dangerous, but the skies were free of the German response. This kind of push and pull, move and counter move, would be a critical piece of the air war for the entire duration, as each side sought to answer the other. One big answer from the Germans started to happen in September with the arrival of a new plane, the Albatross D-1. With the arrival of this new airframe, the pendulum swung once again in favor of the Germans. It was armed with twin machine guns firing through the propeller, which was driven by a 160-horsepower engine. It was superior to anything that the British had, and outclassed the FE-2Bs, which so many British pilots were still flying, by so much that the German pilots could make several mistakes and still win in exchange. There were some Entente planes that had a chance against the Albatross, especially the new Port 17, but that plane was a French model and was being hoarded by the French. Any planes that got outside of their control often found their way into the Royal Naval Air Service. Uh, not much help over the Somme. The new port could not match the Albatross in flat-out speed, but it could outturn the German plane, and this meant that it was a serious challenge to the Albatross if flown by an experienced pilot. Overall, the losses were incredibly lopsided in September, with the Germans shooting down 123 Entente planes in exchange for just 27 of their own. Instead of pulling back from the front, Trenchard redoubled the RFC's efforts to push out over the lines, even in the face of the losses being sustained. Along with air combat and reconnaissance flights, there was another, and I think more interesting, use of a few of the British planes during September. It was during this month that the first tanks would make their debut, but the British faced the problem of getting them up to the front without the Germans knowing, and the armored beasts weren't exactly quiet. 
A rather ingenious scheme was used to make this happen, as Lieutenant Rao explains. Quote, Why are all the F-2Bs learning to fly by night so suddenly? Nobody knows. But within a week or so, all the FD-2B squadrons were night flying. And then they started to drop an occasional 20-pound bomb on some wretched village just over the lines. Why are the FEs flying tonight? They don't even know themselves, except that they were told to go and fly up and down the lines from Arras to Albert. And when one machine came back, another went out to drop a bomb that could do no one any harm. It's an interesting fact that the 120-horsepower Beardmore engines fitted on the early FE-2Bs made almost exactly the same noise as the Daimler engines fitted onto the first tanks. And it was in this way that the tanks were brought up right up to the trenches when the Bosch knew nothing about them. The reason that the FEs always took a small bomb with them was to merely avoid suspicion. End quote. While the tank attack would not be successful, you can't blame the RFC for not doing their part. During October, the Germans would take a page out of the British playbook and begin night bombing behind the front for the first time. Now, this would catch the British by surprise and cause some initial problems. Flying at night was a real challenge during the First World War, with very little instrumentation to assist in navigation. But the most challenging and dangerous part was always landing. To assist the British pilots returning from their bombing missions, the British would line the runways with petrol flares. However, with the Germans now out looking for bombing targets, this tactic had to be changed so as not to give away the location of air bases to the wrong planes. Major George Carmichael explains how the RFC made some changes to deal with this new challenge. Quote, During night flying operations, we were particularly vulnerable as our position was disclosed by having to use petrol flares for getting off and landing, and we had to take special precautions. The flare party of five men, each with his tent of petrol, old rag, and a sousing blanket, stood by to light up when ordered by Sergeant Major Patterson, who knew that the aircraft were ready to take off and to extinguish immediately when the aircraft had gone. On return, each aircraft had to fire a very pistol signal for for the night. Then Patterson would shout the order to light up. When the machine had perched, the flares would again be immediately extinguished. It was not long before the Germans grasped our plan, looked out for a recognition signal for the night, and copied it. As soon as we lit up, down came a shower of bombs. Only one night, however, did bombs actually straddle our positions, and then fortunately without causing any casualty or damage to aircraft. To counter this, we created a dummy aerodrome with canvas sheeting to simulate sheds during daytime and lit flares there at night. On one occasion, this drew a low attack of machine guns sweeping up and down the dummy empty aerodrome. End quote. October would also bring weather issues back to the forefront of the air war. Lieutenant Horridge explains how this affected the pilots. Quote, often it was just too wet and windy to fly at all. We've had a great lot of nice wet days lately, although it usually clears up a bit in the afternoon. It has been very windy too. I found I could make the machine go backwards if I wanted to. On one shoot I was doing, it took me more than half an hour to get from the target to the ground station near the battery. It would have taken three minutes as a rule. End quote. While the weather was certainly not ideal, many pilots probably welcomed the rains, as it gave them some time for rest and relaxation, something they had not had much of since July. November would see the same situation continue over the front. The Germans, with their more technically capable but outnumbered aircraft, flown by pilots like Richthofen and others who had honed their skills under the now-deceased Bolka. It was clear that the British aircraft that had brought them this far in the war were not up to the new task. The DH-2 and FEB-2C were just easy targets now. 
Unfortunately for the pilots, there would not be a new British fighter at the front until May 1917. Over the Somme front, with the weather continuing to deteriorate, the pace of air operations slowed as the battle on the ground also sputtered to a close. Overall, the RFC would have 583 casualties during the Somme actions, tiny in comparison to those on the ground, but when weighted against their small initial number, it was a brutal percentage. The fighting over the Somme had been the first air campaign, where the RFC had faced an armed and determined enemy that was just as capable as the British, and they had done well, even if it had cost them dearly, and their contributions on the ground had been critical to whatever success the British Army had found. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode for part three of our series on the air war, as we will discuss the events of 1917. Goodbye, Piccadilly, farewell, let us dwell, it's a long, long way to Tipperary.